0: Once again, uh, welcome over there in the venue. Thank you, Pastor Joel, for leading that group, and, and Jared for leading the worship uh, and all that. I'll see you in just a second. Um, you know, this has uh, for me, been a, a great, great month. I wasn't here the last two weekends, but on my smartphone, I downloaded our Big Valley app and was able to uh, watch the gatherings and all the music and the interviews and the, and the preachers and, and all of that, and, and I know my own life has been enriched because of the messages that God has, has brought through God's servants here in our city. And uh, I wanted to set it up in such a way that I could be here when, when Matt was here. Uh, we went and had lunch when he was given the job, when God raised him up, and he became the, the senior pastor, the lead pastor at Crosspoint. Him and I got together, and we had sushi together. And I, I, I'd heard about him, and I'd heard great things about him, and there we were having uh, lunch together, and all I could you know think about was, man, I remember when Bill Yeager was there, and I really didn't know the Lord back in those days, but I would go to church there. And I knew he was uh, a man who, who really taught the word, and First Baptist was a great church. I considered Wade Estes a, a friend, and uh, man, what a, what a great church that you know Wade then took that baton and led it right where God wanted it to be. And, And uh, after meeting Matt, I thought, whoa, the baton has been handed off once again to another uh, godly man who will take First Baptist to that new place uh, that it needed to be. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I got in my car and I was driving back to the church and I was thinking to myself, wow, God, it's unbelievable how you have all of these great people you don't even know who they are. And at the right moment, you raise people up. And I knew that our town was gonna to be a better place because of Matt's leadership down at Cross Point. I knew that that church was in a good place because of what God was gonna do through Matt. And I was excited to have him here. You can read a little bit about his bio inside your program, but right now I want you to welcome up Matt Whiteford from Cross Point. Will you do that?
1: Thank you, Rick. Um, you know, that was a great lunch, and, uh, I, I just really appreciate Pastor Rick, and, uh, you know, it, it speaks volumes about his character, uh, that he would invite these different pastors from the churches in town, um, and, and entrust them, uh, with the Word of God, and, and allow them to, to share, allow us to share with you guys, and, uh, that speaks a lot about his security in Christ and his character as a godly man. And uh, so you guys are so fortunate and blessed, but you already know that. Um, it doesn't take me sharing that with you for you to know that. Um, you know, as, as, uh, when I when I first when Rick talked to me and asked me if I could come share, um, I began thinking, what, what do I need to, to talk about? What has God laid on my heart? And I, I began thinking about what, where have I been challenged most? How has God moved me to grow the most in the last four or five years of my life? And uh, as I was praying and as I was as working through that, um, we've been going through the Gospel of John at Crosspoint. And uh, a few months ago, we were going through a passage, and it was one of those things where during the week as I was preparing and studying, um, I kind of had to stop, and uh, I asked our, our staff to get together, and um, I sat down and talked with our staff because uh, what happened to me that week was that my trajectory changed. Um, I believed that because of what God was teaching me that week, if my life stayed the same, if I didn't change significantly, then I would be a hypocrite for the rest of my life. In fact, I shared with our staff, I said, um, if, if this doesn't take root in me, then I shouldn't be the lead pastor at Crosspoint. Um, and so I want to share that with you uh, this morning. I don't want to convince you of anything, um, but I want to lay, lay at your feet what God um, laid before me as I was walking through this. You know, um, to give you a little bit of background, I, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were believers. We went to church. Uh, my grandparents, both sets. Incredibly strong believers, and I, I really believe that uh, um, those of you in your golden years of life, um, you guys really do impact the next generation. Because I know the prayers of my grandparents, uh, both sets, um, have a lot of responsibility for who I am today. And so I grew up in a strong Christian home, uh, went to Christian preschool, went to Christian school, uh, went to a Christian college, uh, went to seminary, um, was in college, I was a precept Bible studies leader. Um, I, did, I did all of these things, and I had an incredible amount of, of, of learning and knowing. And um, one of the things that we, we know in Christianity, that we know that the Bible tells us, is that God's desire for every one of us bar none, is that we would become like Jesus. That is God's desire for every person. But you see, what happens is we tend to take that idea of becoming like Jesus and we put it sometimes into a box, and not even on purpose, but, but we begin to interpret it in a certain way. and And what happens in... I think, especially in the evangelical church that's conservative and and Bible-based and holds up the authority of the Bible and of Jesus Christ, what we tend to do is we get a little bit unfocused and we begin to equate becoming like Jesus with really only knowing what Jesus knew. You see, we can be so information-centric that we can lift up very high and say, really, my judgment of becoming like Christ is is that I know what Jesus knew. And we can get into this rut of knowing what Jesus knows and pursuing what he knew rather than doing what Jesus did. Because you see, knowing what Jesus knew without doing what Jesus did doesn't make you like Jesus. It just lets you know what Jesus knew. And and if I learn anything from the great military strategist, G.I. Joe, when I was little, I learned that knowing is only half the battle, and battles are not won just by knowledge, they're won by knowledge, and then that, that it holds hands with action. And, and so what happens is we tend to get so busy with pursuing the next thing that we feel we need to learn, that we don't have space or margin to do the things that God's calling us to do. And so, see, what happens is, is there's this thing that happens, I think, in the church and Christianity where we, we, we elevate the Bible to a place that it ought not to be elevated. And, and let me just say, because that's, that's a scary statement to hear a pastor say, the Bible is God's special revelation to us. We would not know the things in the Bible if it weren't for God revealing those things through his servants over history, and the Bible is God's word to us. It tells us what God expects, and we would not know those things from nature. We wouldn't know those things from creation. But the thing is, we are not to become like the Bible. We are to become like Jesus. You see, even when you go back into Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, he says to the Pharisees, He says, You search the scriptures because in them you think you'll find salvation. And what Jesus says is, He says, Scripture, I, you don't get salvation through the scriptures, you get salvation through Jesus Christ. And He says, The scriptures point to the Savior. And so sometimes we raise the Bible up to a place where we make it equal with Jesus Christ, and it is not equal with Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God designed for us. You see, God is not revealed wholly in the Bible. He's revealed wholly in Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful that we don't just pursue knowledge or information, but we do what Jesus calls us to do, and we do what that knowledge presents us with, and and we do that. Does that make sense? And, and, you know, we, we run into that and see so often... We don't do things because we use the spiritual excuse of saying, well, I don't know enough. How often have you missed an opportunity to do something for Christ because you decided somewhere in your mind that you didn't have enough knowledge? It's amazing. God uses some of the the least learned people to do the most significant things and and so as i was going through this passage i was blown away at one point and some of it i wasn't blown away by but at one point god changed the way i thought about how i live my life and so if you have your bibles turn to john chapter 4. now i know a couple weeks ago uh, you went through this passage Um, we're going to go through it in a little different way this morning And I do want you to understand that as we go through scripture, um, a lot of times we say, well, I I know that passage. I'm I'm done with that. I I got that nailed. Um, The beauty about scripture is that as we grow, as we mature, the Holy Spirit uses those same passages that, that we've memorized to teach us new things because of our submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so um, this isn't a redo. This isn't a one thing wasn't good, one thing will be good, or, or vice versa. But um, this is what God has really spoken to me. And so I want to go through this with you. In, in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus... When the, let me start over. <laughs> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So here's what happens. Jesus is in this situation where his ministry is growing, he's becoming more popular, sought after, there's people following, and the religious leaders are getting upset because Jesus was not credentialed by their institutions and so they were upset and not happy with what was going on and so they began to stir the pot and make trouble for Jesus and so here there, there came this little theological issue and this, this, this issue that, that, that the Pharisees kinda of brought up and it says here in the beginning of John 4 it says that Jesus rather than confronting them he went out and, and went away so it kinda of looks like Jesus is running from conflict the thing is, does God teach us to run from conflict? Does God teach us to run away when, when, when maybe uh, good is threatened? No, and Jesus isn't running, but you need to understand that oftentimes we, we, we go into conflict for conflict's sake. Jesus went into conflict only when it would glorify God the Father. See, oftentimes we go into conflict because we want to be vindicated or justified. But Jesus never went into conflict to justify himself or vindicate himself or for revenge or to embarrass someone. Jesus only went into conflict when it would glorify his Father the most. And so at this point in time in his ministry, he apparently did not believe that confronting the Pharisees there was going to glorify his Father the most because Jesus did stand in confront. In fact, the result of his confrontation was that he hung on a cross which glorified the Father more than any other single event in all of history. And so Jesus did and he teaches us to, but we've got to do it with the glory of God in mind rather than the glory of man in mind. And so Jesus goes and he, it says in verse four that he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour now it says in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria now we know that there were numerous routes around Samaria because the Jews didn't like to go through Samaria because kind of like um, earlier you know, they were they were dogs in in Samaria They were dirty dogs in Samaria and they didn't want to go through there because Jews didn't really associate with them if they didn't have to yet it says Jesus had to go through Samaria The reason Jesus had to go through Samaria was because God was in charge of his appointment calendar. And so God had set an appointment for for Jesus in Samaria by Jacob's well that day at about the sixth hour. If Jesus was looking on his calendar, he'd say, hmm, about the sixth hour, I need to be at the well, so we need to get going and head to Samaria. See, when, when God sets up your appointments, when you allow God to set appointments and you're flexible to that, then you really ought to keep the appointments God sets for you. If you're going to keep any appointments, keep the ones God sets for you. How often, though, do we get caught up in our busyness, caught up in our agendas, and we miss the appointments that God sets up for us? How many times have you missed an appointment with your children? Because you were too busy and too busy with the things that you placed in priority over them. How often have you missed an appointment with your spouse or your parents or, or a friend at work or somebody at school or, or a random person who crosses your path that you didn't expect but you were too busy moving to the next thing to check off your list. We have to be careful because God's appointments rarely make it onto my own personal appointment calendar. God's appointments are divinely set and I need to respond to those things. And so we have to be careful. And so when it means to go into a place that maybe we didn't want to go, look for the appointment that God set for you. Because there may be one waiting. And so Jesus goes in, and he's sitting by this well, and in verse 7 it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so here's, here's what's happening here. You've got Jesus at this well. He's sitting somewhere maybe on a stone or some kind of bench, and, and this woman comes up, and it's just him and her because his disciples have gone to town, probably begrudgingly, because they, I doubt they were happy that they were in Samaria anyway. I can imagine the conversation on the way, them saying, Jesus, why do we have to go through Samaria? We don't like being in Samaria. We don't want to be here, and we're going to have to. We can go different ways, but Jesus says, no, I have an appointment. And so Jesus sits down at the well, and they're hungry, so they go to town. Now, they probably didn't want to go to town. But just if, if you don't know anything about men, the way to get a man to do something he doesn't want to do is, is offer food. Because that always works. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, hey, it's Bob's birthday. We're going to get together in the conference room. I hate Bob. There's going to be cake. I should go say hello. And so, you know, there's that thing where it, men will be motivated. I mean, I'm amazed at the kinds of food we have today, That things that we found are edible or things that aren't really that edible, but men have eaten. You're kind of like, What are you eating? Cardboard. It's kind of dry, but some ketchup would work, you know, or ranch, you know, and just men will do anything if they're hungry, and so the disciples go to town to get food because they're hungry, and they leave Jesus alone at the well, and this woman shows up, and Jesus asks her a question. He says, give me a drink, and she says, you know, why would you ask me for a drink? Because it says the Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans. Well, There was two common, kind of common wisdom things in in Israel at that time about the Samaritans. One statement was: never share a vessel with a Samaritan. Never share a vessel with a Samaritan because you'll be ceremonially defiled, and it's just impure to share a vessel with one of those kinds of people. The second statement that everybody was familiar with was: do not owe a favor to a Samaritan. So don't share a vessel and don't owe a favor because you don't want to be owing a favor to a person who you do not see worthy as owing a favor to. So here's what Jesus does. He says to this woman, take your vessel, could you put it in the well, and could you share your vessel with me? Now obviously Jesus in this moment is not concerned about being ceremonially pure because he just asked her to share a vessel with him. Not only that, but he takes this, it further and he says, hey, I don't have a, a, bu- a bucket. Could you put yours in the well, bring the water up, and could you give me something to drink? Which now he owes her a favor, doesn't he? Because she just helped him out when he was tired and thirsty. Now she's going to be able to call on him at some point and say, hey Jesus, remember when I gave you that water? You owe me. And so Jesus apparently is not terribly concerned with the social or religious norms in that moment. And so, yeah, the the Jews didn't want to have a lot of dealings with Samaritans, especially not sharing vessels or owing favors. So this woman is taken aback. And she says, you know, why would you ask me for that? Do you realize what you're asking? Who is this nutcase? I mean, he's, he's, he's not a normal guy because he's doing this. And so, and so it goes on and, and it says, Jesus answered her. I love how Jesus answers. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, if you had the slightest clue who is speaking to you right now, you would not care one bit about the social norms that you are so concerned about. Because the person standing in front of you designed you. The person standing in front of you knows the depth of hurt that you've faced in this life. The person standing before you is the one who holds all things together. The one who stands before you is the only one who can satisfy and is the one you've been searching for your whole life. And you keep coming back to this well over and over, and not just this well, but as we'll learn, you go to this well of relationship over and over, and you drink, and you are empty, and you go again and again and again, and what who stands before you is living water. That's what Jesus says there. He says, if you had any clue, you would not worry about anything. Everything else would fade away. Everything else would grow dim in comparison to the one who stands before you. And and, and isn't that interesting that so often Jesus stands before us and we're more concerned about the social norms that we feel like we need to abide by. Jesus stands before us and we're more concerned about the religious norms or expectations that surround us. We are far more concerned often at the face of Jesus, those peripheral things. Yet the Son of God stands before us and says, I designed you and I can satisfy you if only you would ask. So he says that to her, and the woman, probably not wanting to get into a long conversation or discussion, she says to him, "Uh, Sir, or she says, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. She obviously masters the obvious. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. And drank from it himself as his sons did and his livestock. She says, You know, sir, you don't even have a bucket. You're not gonna get me water. In fact, you just asked me for for my bucket. And and she kind of keeps it there. She doesn't really want to get into this conversation. So she says, a little bit intrigued, and she doesn't really even go real deep into who he was. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, but she says, Are you are you? I mean, you're not greater than our father Jacob. I mean, you can't be greater than Jacob. Because Jacob gave us this well. You don't even have a bucket. What do you have to offer me? <laughs> Jacob did this well. And we get water for, for decades and ages. You don't even have a bucket. I mean, saying to me, if you knew who, stood be, you know, who was saying this to you, eh, not so impressed. And not really into this conversation. Jesus responds to her and he says, Everyone who drinks of this water from the well that your father Jacob dug will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. How's that for greater than Jacob? (laughs) The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here's what Jesus says. He says, look, I am greater than Jacob. Constantly in the Gospel of John, the Jews and the people who run into Jesus compare him to Moses, to Jacob, to Abraham. And every time, Jesus responds with saying, I am greater than them. (laughs) Every time he does that. But he says, look, you come to this well over and over to get your thirst quenched to get satisfied and it never lasts it lasts probably until your bucket runs empty and then you have to go do this again that's what jacob provided for you a way to temporarily quench your thirst but i the water i offer you is not temporary but the well out here will be in here And the water I give you will spring up as a well inside of you, and it will always be with you. You will carry it everywhere you go. You won't have to go out late in the day to this well to draw water, because this well will be inside of you, a well that will spring up to eternal life, and you will be satisfied. And so Jesus says, that is what I'm offering you. Now, he hasn't gotten specific to her yet, but she knows that she is not satisfied. And so she looks at him, and she responds in verse verse, uh, 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. She asks for something that Jesus didn't offer, doesn't she? Jesus said, the water I give you will spring up as a well inside of you, and it will spring up to eternal life. And what does she say? She says, sir, I, I don't really want what you're offering, but I do, I'm really enamored with the idea of not having to come here to draw water. So if you could, I don't, I don't necessarily want you, but I want what you have to offer and so just tell me where this is tell me where i can get it and i will go and i'll get this water and really all i want i don't want my life to be transformed i just want a little bit more convenience in my miserable life but isn't that true of how we approach jesus so often we don't want transformation because that takes work and that's change and that's difficult We just want Jesus to give us something that makes our miserable life a little better. We don't want Jesus necessarily all the time because Jesus requires some significant things from us. But we do want what Jesus has to offer, don't we? (laughs) We love the stuff that he has to offer, but, but Jesus himself is a much bigger thing. And so she says, I don't want you, but I'd like that water, so I don't want to have to come and draw that water anymore. You know, she's basically saying, you know, if you, you, know, you, you seem like a smart guy. Maybe you've got some inside track. You know, if you could come to my house and, like, dig a hole in my house, and then maybe we'll put some pipes down there, and I'll, I'll make something called a faucet, and, and we'll, I don't know, we'll call it indoor plumbing. That would be fantastic, because that's really what I want, is just some indoor plumbing so I don't have to come to this well anymore. But then after we're done, you go. Because I'm not looking for transformation. I'm kind of just looking for something to make me feel a little bit better about my life. And so Jesus not taking the bait to stop talking because obviously this woman isn't interested in what he has to offer. But Jesus doesn't give up. And his next statement, he says in verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. There is one thing that Jesus could have said that would send send this lady off. And that's the very statement, the thing he said. He said, go call your husband and come here. That's the one thing that no one would touch with this woman. It's, it's that one thing that, that could be said to you that immediately your defenses would be up and you would say, I need to exit this, exit this conversation. You know, maybe for you, it's when somebody says, you are just like your dad. In fact, some of you just hearing that, maybe some of you are kind of like, he wants to fight. I mean, it, it's, 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 one of the, you, it's a word or a phrase or an accusation and you say, that is the one thing that's off limits. You don't go there you don't talk to me about that and Jesus goes there with her and he says go call your husband and so she responds and she says I have no husband it's kind of a curt and short answer isn't it (laughs) does that sound like she's done with the conversation I mean, I mean, if, if, if you were asked, hey, go call your husband, and your response was, I don't have a husband. Awkwardness would say, I don't go any further, right? I mean, I don't want to be awkward because I just asked you a question about your husband and you said, I don't have a husband. Now, there could have been a few, few reasons why she said that she could, maybe she was never married, maybe she, was, uh, she lost her husband, and she's a widow now, maybe she, she, it didn't work out. And and, and it's maybe, you know, in saying, I don't have a husband, that's accurate, but, but I don't know what that means. Yet Jesus asks her that, and she says, I don't have a husband, and Jesus responds to her. Obviously, Jesus doesn't care about awkward, because she's just closed the conversation, hasn't she? She just said, here's the line, you stepped over, now get back. But Jesus presses. Jesus doesn't take that as, oh, somebody doesn't want to talk about her husband. Jesus takes another step. And what he doesn't say is, he doesn't say, liar! Or, that's not the whole truth, is it? You are deceitful. Yeah, you're embarrassed about something. You're a bad person. No, what he does is he says, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, it's just Jesus and this woman, but if there were other people, that's the point that the other people are like, I remembered I have to go somewhere. I'm late for something, because this is getting really bad. Jesus is awful awkward at this moment. He just says, you're right. Thank you for for telling me that. In fact, not only are you right on that, but you've you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. You've given up on the whole marriage thing. (laughs) What if somebody did that to you? (laughs) When you say, hey, no more conversation, and they just bowl right through it. So Jesus says that to her. And so what does the woman do? She does what any normal religious churchy person does when their back's up against the wall and God has gotten too close, whether it's through his word or through someone he sent to talk to them, When they've gotten too close, when our defenses have been taken down, and when we're standing there naked, she does what any normal, self-respecting person would do. And it's not opening up and saying, you're right, I'm miserable. I don't know what to do next. I have had five failed marriages and 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 i don't know some of them were his fault some of them were my fault all i know is is i don't know what to do next people talk about me she didn't go there what she did she did what what we would do typically when god gets too close and she says let's talk about church She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, the place where people worship, that, that people ought to worship in Jerusalem. Here's what she basically does Jesus gets really close to what's going on in her life. And you know what she does? She says, What kind of music do you think we should do in church? Jesus, uh,. What kind of style of preaching is the right style? Jesus, what what do you, what do you say that people should wear at church and what's appropriate attire? Because those are the really important things. Let's put aside my life for a minute and let's talk about church stuff. Are you being fed at your church? Because that's pretty important let's talk about those things because you're a religious type and i'm pretty sure you'd mu- you'd probably get pretty excited about talking about these kinds of things let's talk about worship what's appropriate worship and what's not and so she says that to him trying to deflect and move him in a different direction i i am convinced and, and there's exceptions to this but i'm convinced when we in the church start talking about our preferences when it comes to church it's because Jesus is getting too close. I'm convinced that when I start to say things about my preferences in church and I start to direct the conversation that way and make that what it's all about, that Jesus is getting too close to something that I'm trying to keep to myself. And that's what this woman does. And so Jesus responds and he says, he says, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, he didn't give the normal answer of a normal priest or Pharisee or rabbi. Jesus said, you're all wrong. (laughs) None of you have it nailed. He says, you don't get worship. You don't understand what worship is. He says, you don't have a worship problem. You have a sin problem. And I am here to fix that. I came to fix sin. You see, as you look back through the Gospel of John, everybody comes and they believe that they have a specific problem, a relationship problem, or a theology problem, or a worship problem, or, or a, a spouse problem, or, or a, a, a financial problem, or an employment problem, and see at the very beginning when John the Baptist announces Jesus he says, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Fixes the relational problems in the world. Behold the Lamb of God who fixes your financial situation. No, what, what John says is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so every time somebody comes up to Jesus, whether it was his mother who comes up at the wedding and says we have a wine problem, or Nicodemus who comes up to Jesus and says we have a theology problem, or the, the, this woman at this well who comes into Jesus and says we have a worship problem, or, or, or later... The the, the Pharisees who say we have an adultery problem, Jesus always comes back and says no you don't have a financial problem you don't have a wine problem you don't have a relationship problem you have a sin problem and I have come to deal with your sin problem so don't distract it with worship you need to understand that, that you don't get worship because worship is all about God's preferences not mine and he says one day you'll get that so he doesn't give the religious answer. And so the woman says to, to Jesus, she says, I, she's a little taken aback at this point. And she's kind of done, and she's not sure what to do next. And she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus' response is very clear and very specific. Because in the Old Testament, if you remember the the, the time that Moses stood by the burning bush before God and, and God's answer, Jesus, and Moses says, who, who are you? And God says, I am that I am. He uses the to be verb, the, the very essence of being, the personal name of God is I am that no one else could speak. In fact, the, the Jews wouldn't even write it. Yet in, in this statement that Jesus makes to the woman, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's this little phrase, uh, "Ego a me," which is the to-be verb? "I am." And Jesus says that to her, and she, she immediately understands what he's saying. He says, "I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, and I have just told you all things." Then G, just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, here's where it breaks off into two stories. You've got the woman who goes home to the town. And she starts to talk to people, and we'll get to that in a second. But first, the disciples come back, and they see Jesus, and, and they've, they've come back with the food from town, and they sit down with Jesus, and the woman takes off. And they don't ask her him about her, because they don't want to go there. They don't want to get into that awkward conversation. Jesus, why were you talking with that woman who's a Samaritan? And, and so they come back from town, all 12 of them. Now, just remember, make a note of this in your brain. 12 disciples who followed jesus were just in that town they come back and 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 so they they say to him rabbi eat verse 32 but he said to them i have food to eat that you do not know about so the disciples said to one another has anyone brought him something to eat I mean, they're looking at Jesus a little confused because he's just been doing something that is not really, they don't think is characteristic of a good rabbi. I mean, they say, well, did he have a snack or something? I mean, they're like, well, was he just brief- briefly Betty White and now he had a Snickers, now he's Jesus again? I, I mean, he's kind of looking at that and so he, they're saying, well, what, did, does he have food we don't know about? And Jesus says, I have food that you do not know about and then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. I have food. Put those together. I have food that you don't know about. He says, I've, I've been feeding. I've been fed. Jesus just says to the disciples, and this, I see, up to this point, I'm okay with this passage. I can deal with it. It's at this point that I was on my face before God because Jesus says I have food you don't know about and my food is to do the will of of the Father who sent me now let me ask you something anytime you've heard in a Christian context someone say I'm not being fed what is that context? it's always about hearing someone preach or Bible study or quiet time let me ask you this. Has have you ever in your entire life heard I'm not being fed in the context of I'm not going out and rescuing the lost? Anyone? Jesus says, I have just eaten. I have food. I have been feeding. And the food is to do the will of my Father. Was Jesus studying the Bible? right before the disciples got back no was jesus listening to a podcast of his favorite preacher before the disciples came back no was jesus having a quiet time of prayer with his father before the disciples came back no what was he doing he was engaging a lost woman and telling her about himself and reaching into her life and saying i can satisfy Being fed is not hearing or gaining knowledge. Being fed is going and doing what God has asked us to do. Being fed is going. Here, and let me, let me take this further. Jesus says it himself in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Okay, If you're kind of saying, and again, I I don't want to convince you of anything, but I want to lay Scripture out for you. And so here Jesus goes a step further, and he says, the fields are white with harvest. In the physical world, the harvest is the source of food, right? You get filled because of the harvest. If there's not a good harvest, you don't get full, do you? What is Jesus saying is the harvest? Is the harvest a big Bible study? The harvest of the lost. He says the fields are white with harvest. He says there is a buffet of unbelievers who you need to go out and you bring them the words of life, but you will be filled and fed. Now, I am not downplaying knowing God's word, okay? Don't get that from this. But what I'm saying is that Bible studies, small groups, listening to sermons... All of that stuff, that is the utensils that God gives us to get at the food. But what we tend to do as Christians so often is we spend 98% of our lives filling our drawers with cutlery. And then we, we go around to other people and we say, hey, look at my shiny fork. Have you ever used that? Nope, but I know it by heart. We're like spiritual bulimics where we take all this information and knowledge and we throw it up because we don't do it. Because we're so caught up in knowing what Jesus knew and not doing what Jesus did. And Jesus said, I have food that you don't know about. My food is doing the will of the Father and the harvest is plentiful. I have been convinced People can leave churches for lots of reasons, but I'm convinced that anybody who leaves a church saying I'm not being fed, it's their own fault. Because I would bet that people who leave churches by saying they're not being fed, I bet that they can't even think of the last time that they went out into the harvest. And, and so Jesus says, he goes on, he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering Fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true: one sows and another reaps. I sent, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in their labor. He's saying, look, it doesn't even matter what happens. It doesn't matter what happens. It's that you go out to the harvest and you feed. And the Holy Spirit will take care of their response. They may walk away saying, I don't want to talk to you. They may sit there and, and they may be so ready to receive eternal life that they'll do it right there. But he says, look, one sows, one reaps. It doesn't matter what your role is, but go and feed. Go into the harvest. I mean, it's, we, we, we live in a culture that's like a golden corral right now. There's bad food everywhere. And we just need to go out and feast and, and let these people, and we will be fed and filled, and and we will be satisfied because that's what God has called us to do. That's not just knowing what Jesus knew, but that's doing what Jesus did, and that blew me away because, you see, I have lived the majority of my life discipling people and inspiring people to go out into the harvest. But I have excused myself as a pastor from doing that very thing. Now, I look for the big open doors like that we all look for. Like when someone comes across your path and they say, man, I just wish I knew Jesus. I can walk through that door. But that's not the sign God's giving us. See, and I had to repent and confess to to, to the people at Crosspoint. This does not characterize me. And I knew at that moment that I needed to radically change the way I think about what God wants in my life. And I could no longer make those excuses. Is it good that I spend time discipling and inspiring people? Absolutely. That's part of my job. But I need to be feeding. And me feeding is not ignoring the world around me so I can listen to another podcast. So I can get into another Bible study. So I can be in another group. So it says in verse 39, and this is, this is the cool thing because Jesus illustrates this right away. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. Now, you need to just back up for one second and understand that, remember the woman, five husbands living with a guy. She goes to the well alone. It's a little town. People know things, don't they? Especially in little towns. People know everything. People know things that they're not supposed to know, but they know everything. And so, so here this woman comes back, and she says, think about this. She comes back to town, Pretend I'm the woman and you're the town. I met a guy. (laughs) Good thing number six didn't marry you because you've already moved on. She couldn't just come back and say, I met this guy, because everybody's like, Of course you did. She had to come back and she had to be honest. She, she goes back, and, and earlier it says, she went back and she said, I met a guy who told me everything I ever did. See, what she had to do was go back to town, and she had to open herself up and say, I need to talk to you. I hear the things you say about me. I know the words you use when you describe me, and they hurt, and at times I hate you for it. I hear you talking about all the men and I see the glares but I want to tell you something today. You're right. You have me pegged accurately. I mean, But I, I, so, so I'm at the well today and I ran into this guy and don't don't go there with this because that's not what I'm talking about. But I met this guy and he had this conversation with me and he told me everything I ever did and he didn't condemn me. But he told me that I can be satisfied. You need to meet him. The woman had to risk being transparent and honest so that the Word of God could be effective in the lives of the people who surrounded her. We don't need another evangelism class. We need to go and be honest and transparent with people about what God is doing in our lives today. Because if, if the checkout clerk at Save, at Save Mart can say to me how she got plastered last night, why would I not be able to say, I can't wait for tomorrow because tomorrow's Sunday and I love my church? <laughs> but we don't say those things because we're kind of, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? You see, we, we have this feeling that we can't let people know that they're right about us because everybody you know believes that you're not perfect without exception. But we try to move towards perfection, at least letting them think that, and so we push that direction. And, and rather, when, when we're talking to people, or maybe even an unbeliever is saying, man, I don't know how to raise my kids. I'm, ter- I'm a terrible parent. And instead of saying, well, I have all the answers because I know Jesus. Jesus. What i can say to a person who's an unbeliever who says i struggle with parenting i can say you want to hear how i parent one time my kids were all three kids were littler and i told them to stop messing around with the horse head on the broomstick handle remember those before they had video games and so um i've got that and so i told them stop messing around somebody's going to get hurt and so they were messing around and all of a sudden somebody's crying want to know what my incredibly godly parenting skills did I took the horse, broke it and threw it and said, "I told you guys to stop messing around." And I walked out of the room. My wife was like, "I married that?" <laughs> you know, and I'm a bad parent sometimes. But what I know is that through the power of the Holy Spirit that God can transform me to be a great parent who is like Jesus. That's how I'm going to be believable. So the woman goes back, she shares that with these people, and it says, so when the the Samaritans came to him, they, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This woman did not go from Jesus and get involved in a Bible study right away. Does she need to know Scripture? Absolutely but she went and she didn't say, I need more information. I need to go to a beginner Bible study class before I can share with these people. She went. And think about this. Twelve ministers just went to the town and had no impact. One woman who had five husbands and is now living with someone went back and the town believed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. She feasted while the disciples walked around saying we're not being fed. So as I close this morning, I want to pray. And and what I want to say, I want to challenge you with this. And, And as I said, I did not come here today to convince you of anything. I came to share with you what God has told me and what he's revealed to me and how he's convicted me. And so I challenge you this morning, do not leave this place and say, I got that information, knowledge received, now on to my next thing. Do not settle for, for knowing just what Jesus knew, but go and do what Jesus did. Jesus, I come before you this morning, and I thank you for your word. that it directs us to you. God, I thank you that we don't just have the book, but we have the author. So Jesus, this morning, I pray for those who are here. God, that we would not just be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. God, that our definition of becoming like Jesus would be Taking what we know, and rather than continuing to know more and more and more, but to do what that says. Father, I pray that this church would feast, that we would go out to the harvest, and that they would feast. Father, I pray this morning that that if there's anything that I said that is in tension or at odds with your word, I pray that you would strike it and forgive me. But the things that came from you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict and inspire and encourage each person to go do. In Jesus' name, amen.